Well, good morning. My name is Hudson. It is great to be here with all of you here in the room, those of you watching online. As we get started, i got two quick things for us. One, right after this service from noon to one o'clock back in the high school room, Mario D'Ortenzio, the founder of Death to Life Ministry that we support here at Illuminate, is going to be doing a suicide awareness class. He leads this every year and it is phenomenal. Highly recommend you go check that out again right after this service from noon to one o'clock back in the high school room. Second, next week we're taking a pause from our series in Genesis, just a pause, not a stop. We'll come back and finish it. But Pastor Jason will be leading us through bigger, smaller, deeper, the future vision for Illuminate and just some super exciting updates we have about how God has been moving. You're not going to miss next week. In fact, he's gonna be in that for a few weeks. So just open up your calendar right now. Whatever you have on Sunday mornings in October, cancel it and make sure that you are here to hear all of that from him. But for those of us here in the room and online today, we're in Genesis chapter 39. You can open your Bibles there and I will meet you over there in one minute. If you open up your Bibles and see the title for this section, you'll see Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And this may be a story that's familiar to a lot of you. And my guess would be that when you're starting off your morning and you're looking to do your quiet time or devotional and you make your chai oat milk latte, which how you milk an oat, still have no idea. But you're going and you're like, I really want to spend some sweet time with Jesus this morning. My guess is you don't open to this story. It may be because the themes of sexual assault, attempted affairs, and overall injustice are in this chapter, and those things are in this chapter. But what I'm going to argue today is that this text we have before us is highly devotional. Because what we see throughout this story is the character of God being revealed in a beautiful way. And that character is summed up in my title for this morning, God with us. God with us with us. I've been doing a lot of thinking about family recently. In 2001, my immediate family moved from Indianapolis to the Valley of the Sun. And so I just grew up not having a lot of my extended family around. And that was fine. I kind of got used to it. But I always figured at some point in life before I got old, whatever that meant, I would spend more time with that extended family. And just as I've gotten older, my family's also gotten older. And I'm realizing that the time that I thought would always be there isn't going to always be there. Likewise, with siblings and cousins who are getting older and starting families and starting careers and moving to awesome cities all throughout the United States, and I want to go visit those cities, hang out with them, encourage them, and see what their life looks like. And then my wife, she is family on both coasts, East Coast and West Coast, and they live in completely different cities, and the rest of my family lives in on top of that through our early 20s and coming out of college, we've built these relationships and friendships and become adults with certain people in our lives. But then life happens and families and careers and they all move to other places too, including even moving to other countries. And I wanna have a certain relationship with these people. I love these people, I care about these people. But what I realize is these relationships are just never gonna be what I'd want them to be due to the simple fact of proximity. It takes proximity to have flourishing relationships. And yes, we have great technology. We have things like FaceTime, which is super awesome unless you're ugly, because then you're just staring at yourself in the corner the whole time you're talking to somebody. That's why I don't use FaceTime. And you know, sending memes to people across social media platforms is a band-aid for pretty much anything in your life. But again, it takes proximity. You actually have to be with people to have a relationship with them. And I know that's a 
heavy way to start this morning. I know for some of you, that's really what you're going through in life right now, and that hits home. But that's actually the great news about our text this morning. Because what we realize about God in this text this morning is our God, the one true God, the God through whom all things were created and all things are sustained. He is a God of proximity. He is a God who wants to be with his people. And that is what is revealed about him in our text this morning. I would argue this text is highly devotional and I'm praying will be very encouraging for all of us. And so with that in mind, we open up to Genesis chapter 39 in verse one, and it says this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So we've been going through the book of Genesis. It's unbelievable to think that we've been in here all the way since January, walking through chapter by chapter. And starting in chapter 12, we began to track the lineage of a guy named Abraham. Why? Because God called Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to be my guy and I'm going to bless you. And this blessing is going to have descendants attached to it and have land attached to it. And actually through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So naturally, we're going to track his offspring to see what is going on in God's redemptive plan. And so Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. And we follow Isaac for a little bit. And then he has a son named Jacob. And we follow Jacob for a little bit. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And back in chapter 37, two weeks ago, we started following one of his sons named Joseph. Now, Joseph is the second youngest in this family. And here's the reality. Even back in the time when Genesis was written, there were family dynamics that played out. And here's the family dynamics. The oldest sibling in the family, I'm the oldest sibling, is objectively the best sibling. Just the way it is. However, we are not the most loved. The most loved, the most adored sibling is always the youngest, the baby of the family. Isn't that so sweet this morning? Man. And so we see Joseph, he is hated by his older brothers. They do not like him. His father plays obvious favorites with him. What makes matters even worse is Joseph being a little naive decides to share a dream he had with his brothers and his whole family. And in this dream, his 11 brothers are bowing down to him, including his father and mother are bowing down. And what no older sibling wants to be told is that they're gonna bow down to their younger brother. And so this just caused his brothers to hate him even more. We fast forward a few scenes and Joseph is told to go check on his brothers. His brothers were herdsmen and they were tending to their father's flock a ways away from home. So Joseph is going to check on them and his brothers see him while he's a ways out and they devise a plan to kill him. It's hard for a dream to come true if the person who had the dream is dead. Fortunately, they don't kill him. Instead, they beat him up, strip him down and throw him in a pit and then end up selling him to some traders who are making their way down to Egypt. And what we need to realize is as we pick up this story with Joseph now entering Egypt, is we need to realize something about Egypt because Joseph was a young man in his late teens. He was the second youngest of a rural Hebrew family. They were farmers, they were shepherds. And here Joseph is entering into Egypt, which would have been like Rocky Point, during spring break, back when MTV had their spring break show and they would have concerts and all types of parties and just complete wild things going on. In fact, he would have been instantly hit with the promiscuity of women and the saturation of polytheism that was all over Egypt at this time. And so here is Joseph entering this place 
And here's what we get in verse two. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So God already begins to turn this horrible situation in Joseph's life into something good. Joseph goes from a random slave to working in Potiphar's house and not out in the field. Joseph goes from working in Potiphar's house to overseeing everything that Potiphar had. And he had such a level of integrity and hard work that eventually he oversaw everything that Potiphar had except for Potiphar's most personal affairs. So what was the key to Joseph's success? Well, we see it all over the text. The Lord was with him. In fact, God was with Joseph in such an apparent way, in such a powerful way that the blessings he was giving to Joseph began to flood over on to Potiphar himself. Now the author is screaming at us to notice something here. For those of you who are observant, you notice that the Lord is used five times in these first five verses. For those of you that are extra observant, you notice that the word Lord is in all caps. Now before you grammarians get angry and start writing emails to people, the English editors of our Bible who have given us the English translation are wanting us to know something about the original language that this would have been written in, which was Hebrew. See, Lord being in all caps is telling us about a specific word that's being used. And it's not just a word, but it's a name. And it's not just any name, but it is the personal and revealed name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that means is he's the God who makes covenants. He's the God who makes promises. And he is the God who fulfills every promise he has ever made. And we're gonna see that play out today. See, what the author wants us to know here is that Moses is making a clear point. Yahweh is with Joseph, the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of covenant, who is faithful to his promises, is here with Joseph being faithful again to his promise made all the way back to Abraham in chapter 12. And the name Yahweh will be used three times at the end of this chapter, making it eight times that the name Yahweh is used in this chapter. And that's significant because it's only used one other time in the story of Joseph, which takes us through the end of Genesis. It is clear what is going on here. And lastly, this will come back up, but notice that because of the faithfulness of a Hebrew, Joseph, Potiphar, a Gentile, is being blessed. But the next sentence foreshadows some trouble headed our boy Joseph's way. Verse six ends like this. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This double recognition of beauty is rare. It only happens one other time in the Hebrew scriptures. And that is actually to explain the appearance of Joseph's mom, Rachel. And we talked about this a few months ago. And if you were here, you heard Pastor Jason in some detail explain what it means to be beautiful in form. And here's the deal. If you weren't there, you need to go back and listen to that because the lead pastor can say things the youth pastor can't say about someone being beautiful in form. (laughs) But this is a clear setup for what happens next. So we keep reading in verse seven. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph 
and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. If you've been following along with us through any amount of time through Genesis, you realize this is not how this typically plays out. In fact, we have heard some wild stories about sexual sin in the book of Genesis. I am thanking God I did not have the text from last week. It had been awful for those of you that were here. What we see is though sexual sin has plagued the great patriarchs of Israel in the past, we see Joseph here, teenage Joseph, resisting Potiphar's wife. And I mean, if anyone had a reason to let loose, it's kind of Joseph. Like he's beaten up, stripped naked, thrown in a pit, and sold into slavery by his brothers. He's now in a foreign land, and he's working hard, and his boss is the one reaping the benefits of his hard work. I mean, it wouldn't be right for Joseph to do this, but it wouldn't make him the worst person we've read about so far in Genesis And this is simply where Joseph begins to set himself apart. He does the right thing. He resists instant gratification because of his beliefs and convictions. In doing so, Joseph gives us a phenomenal blueprint for resisting temptation. And this isn't the main point in the text, but I think it's worth just noting a couple quick things here. First, what we see is his status gives him a sense of responsibility, not entitlement. His status gives him a sense of responsibility, not entitlement entitlement. Entitlement's a big problem with sin. I see it play out in three ways. One, for some of us, we think that our hard work and our success in one area of life, maybe we get everything we want in this certain area. So then we think we deserve whatever we want in every other area and we'll even be willing to take what we want. Others of us think because we've been hurt, Because people have sinned against us, because life has dealt us a bad hand, we think that it gives us an excuse to have poor behavior and to sin. Yet for others of us, because of our moral superiority in the past, not doing what all those other people are doing for so many years, we then think we have an excuse to let loose a little bit, an excuse to have a release because we've been so good in the past. Yet Joseph, though he could claim all those things, He doesn't claim any of them. In fact, he doubles down on responsibility. Next, we see that he doesn't put himself in a compromising situation. It says, day after day, he would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. And this reminds me of Psalm 1, which would have been written a time after this would have been. But it says this in Psalm 1, blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, there's a progression of this because if you'll walk around with the wicked, eventually you will stand with the sinners. And if you stand long enough with the sinners, you will eventually be comfortable to sit in the seat of scoffers. Joseph won't even listen to her. And here's the most practical tip we get for avoiding temptation and sin in our life. Avoid it, avoid it. Easier said than done, but here's where we just need to have some self-awareness. We need to be honest with ourselves. We all have sins that we're particularly susceptible to. 
And so knowing that, being aware of that, we need to set up boundaries in our lives so we don't even go near those things. We don't even allow those sins and those temptations to speak to us. I was able to lead a time of confession for a night of worship a month or so ago. And it was cool just studying the scriptures and what it says about us confessing our sin. And one, to confess your sin, you need to be aware and honest about your sin. But two, just seeing how cool it is to be able to confess our sins, not only to God, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I took this upon myself to do some self-reflection, and it was pretty obvious to me and everyone around me that I'd been struggling with anger in my life. And it was caused from stress and frustration, just even some health things that I've been dealing with. But in the day, stress and frustration and being frustrated about some health things eventually turned into full-on anger. And everything in my life, I was just doing with this angerness, this anger inside of me. And eventually I realized this isn't some little thing, but this is full-blown sin that I'm allowing to be in my life. And so I just sit down and realize what systems, what structures am I going to put in my life to guard me from this sin? And for me, it was all about choosing what attitude I was going to have to start the day with. And so being a pastor, being very spiritual, I realized that if I listen to some 2005 Chris Breezy, that's Chris Brown in the mornings and do a little dance party, sing a little bit, I'm in a way better mood. Like joy is flowing from me and that's not super spiritual, but it was something practical that I could do in my life to choose joy and decide that I wasn't going to allow the anger to have a place in my heart anymore. What we see from Joseph is exactly this. He won't even flirt with the idea of the temptation and the sin knocking at his door. Lastly, and most importantly, what we realize about avoiding temptation and sin is that we must know God. See, Joseph knew God. It says this in verse nine, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Had Joseph gone through with this, his family never would have known. They didn't even really know he was alive. There's a good chance that Potiphar was barely around and he never would have found out either. But what Joseph knew was regardless of those people found out, God would have known. The God who sees all things and hears all things and knows all things would have known. And Joseph knew something about sin. Sin is first and foremost an attack against a perfect and holy God. We see this echoed later by the psalmist in Psalm 51. We have King David and what King David did was he saw a beautiful lady. She was probably beautiful in form and he saw her and he took her because he was king and he could do that. And he laid with her and got her pregnant and then to cover up the affair and the pregnancy he ends up killing her husband. And then he writes this in Psalm 51 as he's reflecting on this. He's talking to God and says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Are you kidding me, David? You took this woman and slept with her and got her pregnant and then killed her husband to cover it up and only against God you have sinned? But actually David understands that this is true about sin. And of course he sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he sinned against her husband Uriah. But first and foremost, he sinned against God. This is the tragedy of our sin. Is that when we sin, it is not just something we're doing to ourselves or the people around us, but sin is first and foremost an assault against a holy and perfect God. And Joseph knows this. And that's a truth that I think should just cause a little bit of holy fear in our lives as we think about temptation and sin and these practical ways to avoid it. And Joseph models this very well for us. But once again, because of someone else's sin, his life is gonna change. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, 
She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So one day the scene is finally right. None of the other guys that should be in the house are there. She is alone. Joseph walks in. She grabs him and says, lay with me. And Joseph gives her a Jesus juke and gets out of there. because He's avoiding temptation. But something happened in the process. It says that he left his garment behind. This garment would have been a tunic. A tunic would have been like a long t-shirt. And I thought about having someone come up on stage and showing you how hard it is to rip a t-shirt off of somebody who doesn't want their t-shirt taken off of them. But that's how pastors go viral for all the wrong reasons. And I'm not gonna do that to illuminate community church. But we realize how aggressive this act would have been by Potiphar's wife. And unfortunately, it leaves behind some evidence that puts Joseph in a vulnerable position. We keep reading in verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her house and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So when Potiphar's wife can't get what she wants, she seeks to destroy the thing that she wanted. And once again, Joseph will suffer on behalf of other people's sin. The master comes home and here's what happens. Verse 19 As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. From the pit to the penthouse to the prison. Joseph, besides a little bit of brown nosing back in chapter 37, he's been a stand-up dude. He has shown integrity. He has shown maturity where other people in the story of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, have not shown the same things. He followed God despite other people trying to lead him astray. And now once again, finds himself in a horrible situation. So what does he do now? Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. For those of you that are paying attention, this is a clear parallel to the first five chapters of, the first five verses of this chapter that we read. And what we begin to see at this point is the main purpose of this text begins popping off the page to us. Yahweh, the promise-making God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with Joseph despite his circumstances, guiding and directing his paths. Yahweh is a God who is with his people. And this is all for the plan and glory of God. If Joseph hadn't been despised, beaten, and sold by his brothers into slavery, he never would have ended up in Egypt. And had Potiphar not bought him, he never would have gotten to, he would never would have gotten the experience of leading a huge operation and huge estate like Potiphar would have had. And lastly, had he not been lied about by Potiphar's wife, his career would have peaked just overseeing Potiphar's estate. 
But what we know about God in this story is God is using Joseph's setback to be a set up to make Joseph number two in all of command over Egypt. And through the famine relief system that Joseph's gonna set up, who knows how many lives are saved from all the surrounding nations around Egypt that come to him for help when the famine hits. We've been saying through every week of this series that everything in Genesis points to Jesus and this week is pretty clear. Joseph, a son of Israel, we said Jacob has two names. His name was Jacob, but then God changed it to Israel. So Joseph, a son of Israel, suffered on behalf of other people's sin. But through his faithfulness, through his suffering, he becomes a blessing to the surrounding nations of Egypt who come to Egypt for famine relief. Jesus, an Israelite, though he suffered because of other people's sin, through his faithfulness, all the nations of the world are blessed. This whole story truly finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I said at the beginning that we learned something beautiful about the character of God. He is a God of proximity. He is God with us. And we see this most clearly through the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. Before Jesus is born, an angel appears to his father, Joseph, a different Joseph. This is many years later. And the angel appears to Joseph because Joseph is engaged, is engaged to a woman who is saying that she is pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. I would need an angel as well. But the angel comes to Joseph and here's what he says to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's how Jesus comes into the world. And then Jesus leaves the world on a similar note before he ascends back into heaven. He's speaking to his disciples, giving them the one last thing he wants them to know. And he says this in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the great commission. This is our mandate as Christians, what we're supposed to do in the, world, in the world, we are supposed to make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to teach people everything that Jesus has commanded us to know and to obey. And the way we do that, he tells us, very into that, Jesus says to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Shortly after this teaching from Jesus, he will ascend back into heaven. But what he told his disciples before this, he said, hey, I'm going to leave. And it's good news that I leave because when I leave, I will send my helper, the Holy Spirit. He will comfort you. He will convict you of your sins and he will empower you to do everything that I have laid before you to go out and accomplish. My big idea for today is this. As Christians, we can live in confidence knowing that Jesus is with us come trial, tragedy, or triumph. For those of you who are found in Jesus Christ this morning, who call him Lord and Savior of your life, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. God dwelling with you, comforting you, convicting you of sins, and empowering you to live the life that God has set before you. So what do we do with this? Well, the good news is that God is with us. But the question is, for all of us this morning, 
Are you with God? God is with us, but are you with God? And I think this sums up the book of Genesis because God is with Abraham. God is with Isaac. God is with Jacob, but they're not always with him. And when they're not with him, havoc ensues in their lives. Chaos erupts all over them and the people closest to them. Though God is always with them, we see that dysfunction occurs when they are not with God. And here we are, we have full access to God because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Yet so many of us live lives with no idea of what it means or looks like or feels like to be with God and to be in his presence. Today's message reminds us that for those who were called by God, for those who have been saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for those who live life in a way that says Jesus is Lord, who confess that Jesus is Lord, we know something. We know that we are children of God. And what that means is that God's crazy about you, that God loves you, and that God is with you. God is with you in the valleys, and God is with you on the mountaintop. Whatever you walked in here with, whatever season of life is going on, whatever chaos was surrounding you on your way through the front door this morning, God is with you when you are found in him. God is with you when you are being affected by other people's sin, and God is with you when your sin is affecting other people. So we have to ask, what's holding us back from this? If I could take a stab at it, because I'm definitely in this boat sometimes. I'd imagine for most of us is that we just don't know what he's up to. But you see, to actually experience this type of relationship with God means that you have to give up control to your life. It means that you have to trust God with your life. And for many of us, if we don't know where we're going, it's hard for us to go. And I imagine Joseph felt the same way after being jumped by his brothers and thrown into a pit. I imagine Joseph felt the same way after being lied about and thrown into prison, but God's plan was so much bigger than he could have ever thought, known, or imagined. The key to Joseph's hope through all of this, the key to his character of integrity through all of this was that he knew God was with him. Christians, it's time for us to give up the steering wheel of our lives. And it's time for us to trust that God can drive way better than we can. And we can do that with the assurance of knowing that God is with us through all things. For those of you that are here this morning and you have no idea where you're at with God, I keep talking about this being saved and Jesus being Lord and you just have no idea where you're at with any of that. I wanna just encourage you with the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that we are far worse than we have ever thought or imagined, but we're far more loved than we could ever dream. See, the bad news is that because of our sin, we've been separated from a perfect and holy God. We can no longer be in relationship with him because of our sin. But the good news is Jesus, God loved us so much. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the life that we can never live, to die the death that we deserve, all to bring us back into a right relationship with God, that we could be with him and he could be with us. And the good news about his resurrection, because he didn't stay dead, but three days later, he rose again means that there is no power in hell, no scheme of man, there is no addiction, no sin, and no past wound that you have that can hold you back from experiencing the freedom that we can find in Jesus Christ right here today. And through all these things, being able to experience the presence and the proximity 
of a perfect, powerful God. The greatest gift you could be given in life is not power, is not fame, is not material wealth, it's not sexual freedom. It's the presence of God. And this is the truth that we remember as we come together as a church body to partake in the Lord's Supper, remembering what Jesus did on the cross for us, reconciling us back to God and the unity that we now have with him, which is where we are called righteous. So we're gonna take a few moments now to reflect before taking communion. And I just encourage you to spend a few moments with God, maybe asking that question, what's keeping me from experiencing your presence? What's keeping me from being with you? Maybe some of you, you just need me to give you permission that you have two minutes in the middle of your weekend to just spend time in the presence of a God who loves you. So go ahead and take a few moments, reflect on those things, and I'll come back up and lead us in communion.